I'm Evelyn, and I'm a geoholic. All right, we made it. I'm not quite sure how, but here we are, episode 180. Um, man, oh man, I about five minutes ago, I didn't know if we were going to make this happen tonight or not. I had full faith in this. Well, you did. You had like, this calming presence, you know, and I was like, okay, if he's not too amped up, I'm not going to be too amped up. Um, so needless to say, producer Sean is on vacation this week. He is... Traveling as we speak to the gorge in Washington State to see the last, I don't know, two or three dead shows, dead and company shows. So, yes, I'm sure he's going to come back with some amazing stories if he can remember them. Or a tattoo or so. Or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> he's he's going to get a tattoo on his bald head. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, I saw this guy's tattoo one time. I was sitting on a plane, and the guy literally in the seat in front of me, you know, he was, he was bald. And on the back of his head, he had a tattoo of, like, a little cartoon character pushing a lawnmower. It was freaking hilarious. Okay, that's cool. That's Is that awesome? Worthy, yeah. Yes, I got a picture of it somewhere. I took a picture of it. So anyways, uh, real quick introduction. We have Larry Fox joining us this evening as my co-host. Larry, for those listening that don't know who you are, quick and dirty introduction. So Larry Fox, I am the VP of Marketing and BizDev uh, over at Bad Elf uh, and... You could also call me Chief Cook and Bottle Washer. So, engineering nerd, business guy, uh, jack of all trades. I love everything. And preparing to go to uh, Esri User Conference. Yes, very. You guys will be there next week. You said you got a booth set up. Are you going to? Oh, I'm. I'm definitely going. Uh, Who's going to miss San Diego in July? I know. I'm so jealous. It's 115 today or something here in Phoenix. It's horrible. Uh, yeah, it's just a little a, a little warm. I, I, I kind of like that. Oh, it's uh, it's a hot day. It's uh, 79 versus 75. Mm, yeah, yeah. This is the time of year I question my decision to live here. But eight months out of the year, maybe nine, I love living in Phoenix. But three months out of the year, I'm like, what am I doing? Having come from the Midwest, yes, there's the six months that you're inside. That's true. It's cold, so. That's true. That's true. All right. Before we move on, I got to make sure that I mention the 2023 National Scout Jamboree that is coming up, gosh, in just a couple of weeks, July 17th through the 19th in West Virginia. And this is where scouts from across the country get together in the spirit of scouting. Kyle Schultz is the booth coordinator for the Surveying Merit Badge, and he is looking for volunteers and donations to help support the booth. If you are interested in volunteering or donating to support the Surveying Booth, please email Kyle at kyle.schultz, that's spelled S-C-H-U-L-T-Z-E, at gmail.com, kyle.schultz at gmail.com. It's a great cause, and I'm sure he would love to hear from you. If you remember back in the day, which was pre-COVID, the United Surveyors of Arizona sponsored the Boy Scout badge, or Boy Scout Survey Merit badge for the Boy Scouts here in Arizona, and it was amazing, the uh, the turnout. It was super rewarding, you know, tons of kids, they got super excited about the, you know, the little activities that we set up for them and everything, and it was just really, really cool. 
I, I have uh, I've done the Boy Scout Jamborees. Uh, oh, you did? The, the geocaching badge. Oh, really? And that was just that a is fun. awesome. Yeah, very rewarding. So, uh, if you're at all interested, reach out to Kyle. Uh, one thing I want to mention, this is something that's been driving me crazy, and hopefully I am not the only one, and I'm going totally off topic here. USB ports, okay? Mm-hmm. Am I the only one that when I go to plug in a USB port, every single time, it is upside down. It never goes in right the first time. So uh, one of my business partners actually said, USB ports need to be plugged in three times. Oh. You plug it in thinking it's the wrong way, and then you flip <laughs> it around, and it's actually the wrong way, and then you plug it in the right so way. So I'm not the only one. Yes. <laughs> I just had to get that out there, because today, for whatever reason, I was plugging in a bunch of you. Even when we were scrambling here before the show, I was like plugging in USB ports, and none of them were going in right the first time. I'm like, this drives me insane, so I'm not the only one. That's good. All right. You're up. Tell us about that opening number, Larry. Ah, so it's Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Fleetwood Mac is a British-American rock band formed in London in 1967. Fleetwood Mac has sold more than 120 million records worldwide, making them one of the world's best-selling bands. In 1979, the group was honored with a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 98, the band was inducted inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and received the Brit Award for Outstanding Contribution to Music. In 2018, the band received the Music Cares Person of the Year Award from the Recording Academy in recognition of their artistic achievement in the music industry and dedication to philanthropy. Um, legendary band, no doubt, no doubt. And a lot of a lot of history. I know there's like some marriages that failed within the band and stuff like that. And I got to tell you, when I was a younger man and listening to Fleetwood Mac, like in my formidable teenage years, I used to think Stevie Nicks is pretty hot. I would have to agree. Yeah, so I'm not the only one there either. Yes. Um, <laughs> her, her voice is so iconic. Yep. You, you have so many people trying to emulate yep. it. It's just... You hear Stevie Nicks and you go, you can't. It's yeah. so unique. So unique. And she just got like this aura about her. And it's like mysterious. You know, she's like a very mysterious human being. And I believe she lives here in the Valley. Uh, she had a place over in Paradise Valley. Yeah. I don't know if she still has it. She did this whole communal living thing with uh, oh, a bunch of family members. Yeah. Uh, so, mm. yes, yeah, she was out here for a while. She may be cohabitating with... Uh, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Cooper, Alice Cooper. Maybe those two are cohabitating. I can see them too. I could see that. She's, she's an Arizona native. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure they're good friends. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Probably done some drugs together. I would imagine. I don't know. I'm making that up. Um, we are in the wisdom Wednesdays studio and a little news here. There's a new Trent involved with wisdom Wednesdays. That's Trent Williams. Uh, another really good guy. Maybe it's something with the name Trent. Maybe all Trents are really good guys. I don't know. But over the last season, I guess, of Wisdom Wednesdays, they have gone chapter by chapter through uh, one of the survey Bibles, the evidence and procedures for boundary location. Um, like I said, they've gone through chapter by chapter, and they're taking a little bit break, a little bit of a break here in the summer. Uh, but Trent Williams is um, taking the time to basically summarize 
all of the chapters and the discussions that were had. So that information is going to be available on wisdomwednesdays.xyz. And just a heads up, when they start up the next season, they're going to be doing the same thing, but with the uh, Land Survey Descriptions Manual, another really good one. So uh, Mentoring Mondays, Wisdom Wednesdays, tons of opportunity there to get some really good survey education firsthand. Larry, you're up again. Tell us about this week's Airworks Somewhat Random Trivia, and this is very fitting for our guests this evening. Oh, this is uh, actually quite exciting. So uh, a couple of uh, fun facts. Archaeologists study human societies that lived in the past through the discovery and analysis of the things that they left behind. This includes artifacts from millions of years ago, right up to the things developed in recent times. Uh, another interesting thing is there are no written records for 99% of human history. Mm. This is one of the reasons why archaeology is so important. Archaeologists survey, excavate, and analyze data to help us understand the past. Archaeology is very, a very discipline that can involve aspects of art history, classics, physics, chemistry, geography, and other fields. And finally, if you want to become an archaeologist... It's a good idea to study areas such as statistics, geography, and geology. Good stuff right there. Absolutely. I've always had interest in archaeology, but I'm just like, can you make a living doing it? I don't know, but we're going to find out. Whenever we're going to loop our guest here, and he's going to let us know if you can or can't. Um, but before we get there, we have to do the Advanced Geodetic Survey's weekly words of wisdom. This week, uh, we have a quote, again archaeology centric here we go archaeology is the peeping tom of the sciences it is the sandbox of men who care not where they are going they merely want to know where everyone else has been and that was of course jim bishop who was an american journalist and author I think we should get our guest in here so he can clear up all this stuff. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, we're not archaeologists. We are far from it. We are far from it. Um, All right. We have Hunter Whitehead with us this evening. A little bit about Hunter before we allow him to jump into this circus. He was born in Brenham, Texas, home of Bluebell Ice Cream. Big fan of Bluebell Ice Cream. He... Uh, earned a BA and MA in historical archaeology at the University of West Florida. Larry, do you know what the mascot is of University of West Florida? Uh, that's a good question. The, go Argonauts. The Argonauts. The Argonauts, yes. His hobbies include, he is an adamant book collector. We're going to get to the bottom of that. And his current position is he works at Search, Inc., where he helps manage the Maritime Archaeology Division. Hunter, welcome to the Geoholics. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And and I really, I've been waiting to say this. Uh, I I swear I always plug in my USB about four or five times before. Ah, So I'm right there with you. I am so glad it's not just me. So glad. Well, let's get to know Hunter a little bit. So you grew up in Texas, um, and you are an archaeologist. So was there something in your childhood that happened that you think kind of put you on the track as far as this career decision goes? You know, I, I don't think there's anything related to growing up in Texas uh, that might have led me to become an archaeologist. Uh, but I, I do remember visiting the battleship USS Texas as a kid, mm. and, and that had a been, big impact 
you know, what kid doesn't like, you know, crawling all over a World War One, World War Two uh, battleship. Um, but also my family used to take me uh, on vacations to Galveston and there's yeah. an aviation museum there that I absolutely love visiting. I mean, it was like every year. Yeah, I'm sure my family was like, again, really? You want to go to this thing again? <laughs> Oh man, that's awesome. And being a book collector, um, do you have something in your collection that is like a prized possession? Probably not a prized possession to, uh, anyone else, but myself and maybe a few colleagues of mine. Um, I've, I've got a bunch of old underwater archeology span reports, uh, from like the sixties and the seventies. And, uh, like I said, no, nobody else would care about these, but, but someone who's, who's really integrated into this field. And, uh, you know, over the years I've become a big eBayer and, uh, kind of found some, some pretty rare, rare things in terms of, uh, books that, that were signed by some of the earliest underwater archeologists, uh, George Bass and, and, and some of these early guys. So. Interesting. And last but not least, before we get into the meat of this, um, talk about Search Inc. I mean, cool name for a company, obviously, but you know, what's, what's a typical day like for you? Um, talk about the company culture, if you like, or just in general, what do you love about your job? Well, I, I like to say, and I'm, I'm pretty new into search, but I like to say that we not only search, but we find. So uh, search, search is what we call a full suite cultural heritage firm. Uh, we cover terrestrial and underwater archaeology, architectural history, uh, tribal consultation. And so, like you said, I, I help manage the uh, Maritime Archaeology Division's uh, projects across the country and across the world. Uh, and that mostly consists of geophysical remote, uh, remote sensing surveys and uh, shipwreck <laughs> investigations. And so while I do get to do some pretty exciting stuff, uh, the day-to-day is, is usually handling logistics uh, for field crew travel, client calls, budgeting projects, uh, permit applications, you know, the nitty-gritty stuff that you just it has to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what I do love about my job is that just as about as soon as I'm tired of being in the office, hmm. I get to go back out into the field and vice versa. Yeah, that's awesome. Have that flexibility. Um, so I have to be honest with you, before I started doing research about uh, this episode, I had no idea there was such a thing as maritime archaeology. Neither did I. I, I <laughs> and I, I consider you a very intelligent human being, Larry. And the fact that you've never even heard of it doesn't make me feel so bad. Yeah, I... I've worked with uh, at ASU with a number of classical archaeologists, and yeah. I just, I, I, it, it was like an aha moment. Exactly. Well, yes. of course you would look at things under the water as well. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So on that note, Hunter, um, tell us what maritime archaeology is. Well, it's it's kind of been been touched on. Uh, so archaeology is the study of past peoples. Uh, through the lens of what they left behind are artifacts, right? And so maritime archaeology happens to focus on maritime activity and uh, archaeological sites that have been found in submerged environments. Uh, when people think of maritime archaeology, they tend to think mostly about shipwrecks, right? Uh, but that's actually a pretty narrow view of the subject as a whole uh, because there are not only shipwrecks found underwater, but there are submerged cities, roads, ports, airplanes, there's all kinds of stuff that, that, that can be found. And uh, if you think about it, virtually 
all people are connected by, by some maritime activity, uh, even if they live in the interior. So even today, people in Nebraska, people in Nevada, they're, they're receiving products that, that arrived from like a cargo ship, right? So they're, they're connected and, and actually archeological studies have shown that it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, even inland first peoples of the Americas were trading with, with coastal societies. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an important aspect of archaeology, but, but not only that, uh, to, to society as a whole. Gotcha. And why, why is this important? Well, it's, it's important to me because uh, I, I get a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> go. My job. But no, it's, it's, uh, no it's, it's important to everybody because I, I think if you, don't, if you don't think about your past, you know, the, the, the typical... You know, you're you're not going to learn from your mistakes, et cetera. But but also, I I just think it's interesting, and it it uh, correlates to human human cultural uh, culture, uh, the arts, et cetera. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And you mentioned um, just a second ago, you mentioned like the state of Nevada, and you know that would like the water shortages and stuff like that and like Lake Mead and the water levels, you know, they dropped to a historic low and all of a sudden all these like old ships started appearing and barrels with dead bodies and things like that. Does that fall under maritime archaeology? Not necessarily. Uh, not, not with, not with the, the dead bodies <laughs> and barrels and, and things of that nature. I'm sure they're using some of the, some of the same technology to, to find, uh, some of those things. Um, and actually, random tidbit, I, I may have been involved in one of the only few underwater uh, archaeological investigations in Nevada. Uh, in oh, grad wow. school, I was, I was helping a buddy with uh, his his PhD dissertation work out in uh, Lake Walker, and he was looking for uh, what would have been terrestrial uh, sites that are now underwater. <clears throat> Oh my God, that's awesome. So cool. Um, I remember, and maybe you've heard the story and maybe it's complete bullshit, but I can remember, I grew up in Chicago and we spent a lot of time as a kid on Lake Geneva, which is just over the border in Wisconsin. And I had heard that they had found pieces of ships that sunk in Lake Michigan in Lake Geneva and vice versa that ships or boats that sunk in Lake Geneva, they found pieces of them in Lake Michigan. Like there was some sort of underground canal or cave that connected the two bodies of water. I have no idea. Does that sound even possible or am I completely crazy? Yeah, probably, but <laughs> no, I, I really can't. <laughs> Highly unlikely. I, I have to, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, to, to look into that. That sounds fascinating. I'm going to find, there's got to be an article out there. Either that or me and my dad was just like full in my head with bullshit. I don't know. Now, the interesting thing is, and maybe you could, you could gut check me on this. Um, so I learned to scuba dive in, in Illinois. And I had heard that uh, Lake Michigan has one of the highest count of shipwrecks. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I, I don't know the, the statistics on that, but I, I imagine it's true. Uh, purely, there's a, there's a lot of maritime trading activity uh, in, in that area, but also yeah. the preservation potential of the, uh, the fresh water in that area. You know, sure. if, you, if you think about it, salt water, it, it corrodes anything. Look at, look at uh, you know, you, you, you've got docks that are just degrading over, over time within the last 50 years. Now you put 
you know, several hundred years, that there's not going to be anything left uh, of a shipwreck. Um, so all of this, I mean, first of all, I find it absolutely fascinating. How does it, how does, how does this contribute to our understanding, let's say, of just history and ancient civilizations in general? Um, so, so to answer that, I, I got to say first that I'm, I'm a historical archaeologist and uh, I really focus on American history and uh, rather recent history, actually. So my knowledge of ancient civilizations uh, is rather limited. Uh, but what I can say is some of the earliest underwater investigations in the Mediterranean, like in the 1960s, uh, like Dr. George Bass from Texas A&M and, and, and others, uh, they, they uncovered a ton of information that, that was unknown at the time about 4th and 5th century trade networks uh, and, you know, naval battles. And, and there's so much, there's, there's recorded information, but there's so little known beyond what maybe one person wrote down. And so you, you kind of, when you're recording a shipwreck, you, you get glimpses um, into the lives of people that, that lived through history, like fascinating events. And so, you know, personally, I, I like to study World War II aviation uh, which is a bit more tangible to, to some people um, because family members, you know, maybe they remember when a ship or, or an aircraft went down uh, with, with a loved one. And so in, in the study of recent shipwreck or air wrecks, we can, we can essentially bring closure uh, to some of those families, which I, I think is yeah. kind of an admirable um, and, and important mission. Yeah, no question. So like, what's like, and I don't know if you know this or not, but like, what's one of the oldest shipwrecks that's ever been discovered? Oh, you know, I, I can't think of, of one right now. I, I know they were, they were just um, in the news within the last 10 years. There's some of the oldest shipwrecks that were found in the Black Sea. Oh, wow. um, really, really, really deep uh, shipwrecks that probably dated to the, uh, I don't want to say centuries, but let's call it the, the third, sure. second century. Crazy. That's insane. Wow. That's insane. They're still like preserved somehow. It's incredible. Yeah, no kidding. Especially with the conditions of the water. And yeah, yeah. Like some of those, like uh, you know, those these guys that are like treasure hunters. You know, it's like that would be the coolest thing. Like to find an old shipwreck. You know, in a just a chest of gold or something. You know what I mean? It's like the stuff you dream of as a kid. Your doubloons. That's, yeah, that's uh. That's typically the, the questions that I get, you know, from my family and et cetera is how much gold have you found? And I'm like, right. Oh, yeah. None. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so like, what is the, how, what is the process like? Like how just kind of walk us through, you know, like in my notes here, you know, I talk about the discovery process and, you know, some of the challenges, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you go about, you know, identifying the site and then you know, if there's like underwater excavation and just kind of take it from there. I mean, what does the whole process look like? Well, you know, there, there are obviously multiple ways that, that people go about it. So uh, in an academic setting, uh, when, when you've got a little bit more time, you're not pressed for, for time for uh, construction or, or something of that nature, uh, you usually have an idea of where a shipwreck is, right? And um Based on historic maps or other documents, you create a hypothesis and uh, of, of where you think this wreck is. And then you, you go after the funding and the grants and uh, you search for it, you know, with traditional side scan sonar, magnetometers, uh, sub-bottom profilers, things like that. Um, 
but in my line of work, the question usually is, is there anything in the way of where construction will be happening, right? So we're given an area that, that a bridge is going to be put in and they say, you know, whatever federal agency, state agency says, <coughs> right, we're going to pay you to go find if, if there's anything that we might potentially impact. And we usually go in and say, nope, there's nothing there. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so if, if there is something there, that's when things get potentially interesting, you know, because sure. now, you know, they got to put a bridge, a bridge in, uh, but now they've got this potentially historic shipwreck. And so they have to do additional investigations, which sometimes looks like uh, scuba diving on the wreck. If it gets, if they have enough money, they will do uh, excavations and, and try to determine, you know, if, if this thing was really important uh, to, to the history of the area or, or to the history of the United States. So then after that, if, if you get into excavations, uh, you, you have to have significant permits, significant plans in place, because uh, as soon as you take artifacts, especially wood and iron, mm. um, out of the water, they're, they're going to deteriorate, uh, degrade very quickly. And so you have to have facilities to, to hold the, this, uh, these artifacts in and, and a plan for the future to, to kind of pres- preserve these things uh, so they don't just immediately turn to dust. So these studies, are they done typically ahead of time? Like if somebody, like you said, it was a great example, building a bridge over a waterway, do they call somebody like you and, and Search Inc. in to do a study to make sure there isn't anything there before they build a bridge? Or is it, oh shit, we've, we're building a bridge and we found something and we don't know what it is. Let's call Search Inc. Yeah. So the, it depends on, on the, um, the state and, and the area or the land that, that they're doing um, the construction on. So, so say, say in Texas, the uh, Texas DOT is putting in a project. They're going to have someone who's on the environmental planning committee and they're going to have all the check boxes. You know, we have to make sure that we're not impacting uh, the waterway in, in any negative way. We're not impacting the, the bugs and the bunnies, so to speak. We're not impacting, uh, you know, what on and on and on. And so they're usually in place that we are doing these surveys sometimes years before a, uh, construction is mm. even put into place. Sure. Now that being said, you know, sometimes the, the dots aren't, aren't, uh, checked. Right. And we get a last minute call and, you know, sometimes that's that's when we have to, to run out there and, and uh, do a survey real quick. And yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe our prices are a little, are a little higher at that point. <laughs> so so I'd have to ask, are, you know, in, in all these processes, I've got to imagine there's a number of groups of different people that are, you know, a part of a building project. So are, are you collaborating with geologists who are you know, looking for looking at the suitability of the the material that they're going to build a bridge across, for example, or, you know, h- how does, how does that whole process work with the other respective fields that, that, you know, are part of, you know, what the project might look like? So, okay. That's, that's a great question. Um, yes. And, and no. So, right. Like uh, for a bridge survey, the engineers are, are going to under, have to understand what, what the sediment looks like and, and stability and, and that sort of thing. So they're are 
going to already collect their own remote sensing data. Mm. So sometimes we, we tag along with, with those groups and we work side, uh, side by side. Uh, and other times we're, we're kind of an afterthought and we just have to go collect all of our own data. And uh, that, that kind of just depends on client and, uh, and money, you know, budgeting. What type of technology are you guys using to collect that data? Uh, each state has, has its own uh, set of requirements. So, hmm. but, but typically it is uh, side scan sonar, uh, sub-bottom profiler, and a magnetometer. And then sometimes we have a, a single beam echo sounder uh, just to, to receive depths. Interesting. So, so one thing that's, uh, that's come up in the terrestrial world, that's, that's a big deal, you know, outside of, you know, all the metaverse talk and, and all that is this whole concept of a digital twin. And it sounds like all the information you're getting is somewhat of an underwater digital twin. Can you maybe talk about, you know, what, what, what the products that you're producing out of, you know, all the collection mechanisms you're using? Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I'm not familiar with that term, digital twin, um, but, but I will say it, it sort of sounds like, uh, like if you have 3D dimensional data, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, photogrammetry, which, which is uh, something I, I've used for, for my master's thesis. You, you can essentially collect a bunch of video or, or photo data around a site and then um, plug it into a software and it essentially will create a, a replica, a 3D replica of of a site um, which is absolutely fascinating and it's something a lot of people are looking at um, to protect sites um, instead of someone having to have to be a scuba diver to go visit a site and potentially negatively impact that site taking things and you know that's kind of human nature is one that want to take a piece of it home um, we we instead put put the digital model online and you can go in and it's like you're there and not mm-hmm. only for scuba divers, uh, people who can't scuba dive, they, they can actually experience um, that. And, and, you know, I don't know much about the metaverse, but maybe that's something we should look into. Yeah. Hey, there's a new business model. There you go. Brad off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how many maritime archaeologists are there? I mean, is, is there... Uh, again, I'm, I'm thinking it's got to be a pretty small fraternity of... Uh, of archaeologists? Well, you know, practicing archaeologists or someone who has a maritime archaeology degree, it's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I, I, I do think there are studies out there that, that kind of gauge these things, and I, I would probably say practicing, have a job, maritime archaeologists, it's got to be uh, sub 100, something like that. Wow. And, and we, all crazy. Talk, we're all, yeah. we all go to the same events. Same conferences. So That's awesome. It's a pretty tight, tight community. <laughs> Super cool. And, um, you know, I know like in the bio information you sent us, you know, you've worked on some really cool, unique projects. Maybe talk about a couple of those. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Um, so I, I always have to say, you know, probably the best experience as an underwater archaeologist is, is getting to actually physically be on a shipwreck and be digging and, and, and trying to find something on a shipwreck. And, and I got to do that during grad school in, in Pensacola, Florida. 
uh, on an excavation of a 1559 Spanish colonial shipwreck uh, called the Emmanuel Point II shipwreck. And so that, that wreck was one of uh, conquistador, conquistador Tristan de Luna's ships uh, wow. and his attempt to colonize Florida. And so if, if you don't know, most of his fleet sank during that storm and, and eventually his, his colonization attempt uh, failed. So that, that was just incredible. I, I excavated uh, portions of the shipwreck. It's awesome. You know, there's ballast stone, pottery fragments, cannonballs, stone cannonballs. Wow. Um, leather shoe soles, um, <laughs> all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it just as, as a young, I mean, I must have been... 21, 22 years old at that point. That was just, you know, probably the, the just the coolest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can imagine when you see something like that, you're like, you're hooked, you know, it's like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. I got to figure out a way how to make money doing this. Yeah. Who's doing this? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Hey. laughs> right. Right. And what was the, um, something about, um, a, like planes as well? Is there something about planes? I mean, in yeah, addition to ships, but some, yeah. That's sort of that's sort of my my uh, my specialty. I mean, I, I think there's probably maybe a dozen archaeologists out there who, who focus on aviation archaeology, which is the, the study of airplane wrecks and, and other artifacts mm. associated. So that that was my my uh, master's uh, uh, degree. I, I I did my thesis on a couple uh, World War Two era post World War Two era airplanes. That uh, crashed during during uh, uh, training in in Pensacola. Wow! And so, I've I've got a bunch of ongoing projects, and that that's one of them is is continuing to look for these dozens and dozens of aircraft uh, that crashed off the coast there. And I've I've got the uh, Naval History and Heritage Command's uh, underwater archaeology branch. We're we're actively surveying uh, off off the coast, looking for these things. So there, there's going to be a lot of lot of uh, new stories, hopefully in the next few years, about us finding a bunch of them. So cool. Um, there's going to be like, there's probably like geospatial archaeologists. I think we're onto something here. Uh, I think we are. And is yeah. What do you think? It, we know so little yeah. about. Getting the space is easier than getting under most most of the ocean. We True. tend to agree, right? Hundred percent. Not much about space, but uh, I, I would. Hey, <laughs> Quick shout out to Monson Engineering. Monson Engineering is the leading supplier of surveying, GIS mapping, scanning solution products for the design build industry in the Intermountain West since 1974. Man, when were you born, Sean? <laughs> Not then. They provide cutting-edge design-build technologies and supplies, including Trimble GPS, Teledyne Optech 3D scanners, Spectra Precision Total Stations, Tiny Mobile Robots, Emicent Hovermap 3D scanners, DGI drones, Sokia levels, and Topcon lasers. These guys pride themselves in being your one-stop shop throughout all the phases of your project, planning to completion. From drones to lasers, total stations, or high-accuracy GPS equipment, they have what you need when you need it. To learn more, go to MonsonEngineering.com and be sure to let them know the Geoholic sent you for those deep, deep discounts. Yeah. And now what's the, you have a nonprofit, is that correct? Or not-for-profit yeah, that you're, you're building? 
I do. Yeah, it's it's uh, the Air Aqua Project. Uh, it's spelled A E R A Q U A. Um, I I started this this project with a couple colleagues of mine um, back in 2020. You know, I think I was stuck inside and uh, didn't have anything better to do, so I, I started this thing. And I I actually just finally published a uh, a website, which is at A E R A Q U A dot org. <laughs> Uh, so check it out. There's going to be stories published there on, on uh, future collaborations and future projects and future surveys. So that, that's some exciting stuff. Very cool. You got something over there, Larry? Yeah, I saw you made mention that uh, you were uh, looking at a P39. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, and, and that's that's a project I've kind of tangentially been involved in uh, for a couple of years now. Uh, it's it's a project that that was kind of initiated by archaeologist Wayne Lusardi, and uh, they they are looking at a Tuskegee Airman uh, aircraft in Lake Huron, and they're, they're oh, wow. I mean just just Google uh, Google's your friend here Google Lake Lake Huron Tuskegee, and you'll find tons of stories about this, and and that's that's kind of an ongoing project probably for the next five years or so. So lot lots of cool stuff there. Hmm. So here's a fun fact, and because I did some recon on this, I'm like, what's a P-39? Because uh-huh. I, I, I'm an aviation buff and uh, a private pilot. I'm like, oh, I know what a P-38 is. I wonder if it's a variant. And, and I looked at this, huh. uh, at this thing, and here's an interesting thing about this, this airplane. I, I, I found out that it has the highest kills huh. for any U.S. fighter flown by any Air Force in any conflict. Wow. <laughs> And was used by the Soviet Air Force. Wow, really? Yeah. So interesting. So I was like, wow, you you enlightened me with that. You, you just kind of performed some uh, archaeology there. Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> Without even knowing it. <laughs> so well, you mentioned... Not to burst your bubble, but I, I was just looking through one of these <laughs> books I have, and the book title is something like Worst Aviation you know, Products Ever, and the P-39 <laughs> was in there, so... Oh yeah. Well, that, from my from my engineer point of view, yeah, it 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 wasn't ideal compared to the, the state of the art at that time. Oh man, that's good stuff. Uh, Hunter, you mentioned there's like maybe a hundred folks doing what you're doing. Um, are there is there like a certification you can get? Like, I know like you have acronyms after your name, RPA. My guess was that was registered professional archaeologist. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, yeah. So, so I have a master's degree in, in historical archaeology, and I, I focused on underwater uh, at, at basically one of the three or five schools that, that do that. Uh, and in RPA, that's that's registered professional archaeologist, and that's that's essentially it's it's not an official certification or anything. It's it's essentially saying, yes, I will follow the ethics of a professional okay. archaeologist. You know, and they've, they've got a list of things, but uh, yeah, they're they're really probably only three uh, schools that I would recommend. It's my alma mater, of course, University of West Florida. Uh, Texas A&M University somehow wow. has a, a program in College hmm. Station, Texas, nowhere near uh, the coast, I shouldn't add. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, East, East Carolina University. And, oh, wow. and then there are a few more popping up here and there, uh, Florida State University and, and Miami, University of Miami. Interesting. 
Um, so I have to ask, of course, there was just that uh, unfortunate accident, what, week, two ago, two week, week ago? Yeah, a couple weeks with, ago. With um, those folks that, you know, took the submersible down to the, the Titanic. Um, is that something you would ever want to do? Uh, good question. And, and I, I'm going to say, you know, probably not at this point. Um, yeah. I'm probably not going to comment too much on that right now. It's, it's, it's pretty fresh. <laughs> yeah, it's all fresh, right? I get it. I get it. You did mention earlier, though, that, um, you know, when you find some of these things, you have to take into consideration, you know, the, the families or whatever that may be associated with the findings. Is there, you know, are there any ethical considerations that you need to take into account when you are, you know, you know, finding or extracting some of these, uh, these artifacts? Um, I, I think I, I touched on them briefly earlier, but, but essentially, you know, as soon as you impact an archaeological site, you're not going to learn anything from it after it's been impacted. So you, you mm. take an artifact, you know, that mm-hmm. artifact's out of place now. You don't know how it's associated with other artifacts. And so we, we really take our time when excavating uh, shipwrecks and, and other things to make sure we're capturing as much information as possible at the time. Um, and, and the other thing is, is we want to make sure if we are extracting artifacts from sites that we have, we have plans for the future to, to preserve these things for, for future generations to, to enjoy and to understand and, and, and that sort of thing. But, um, and, and kind of tangentially, we, we make sure, or most of us as archaeologists, make sure that, that we are publishing uh, this data in, in some format. So it, it's not just as soon as we dig it up, it's it's going to a museum and then it just sits there. There's a story behind it and mm-hmm. there's data to, to be looked at uh, for, for the future. Sure. Yeah. We got you there, Larry. Have we, have we got everything? Not a... Well, I, I'm kind of curious because... That there's a forensic aspect that it feels like that's part of your job. And, you know, kind of going back at what Kent was, was going after, I, I, I wonder, uh, maybe if you could elaborate on that, you know, how, 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 does, how does that kind of tangentially apply to what you're doing? Because it, it seems, you know, there's there's a lot of information to be gleaned and I really understand, you know, where you're coming from with the archeological process. You don't want to disturb the site, but by the same token, there's also information potentially to be learned. Like, especially if something's newer, like why did something fail? Is there a materials issue? Um, And and so let's extract ourselves away from, you know, what happened a couple of weeks ago, but just, just in general, you know, how how does archaeology interact with the, the the forensic style of investigation and you know for whether it's material sciences or whatever? Yeah, good question. Sure. So, yeah, that's a great question, and and you know I, I can't speak too much on the on the forensic side, but uh, archaeology is is a subfield of anthropology, and uh, it just happens to be that. Um, Biological anthropology is also a subfield, and a lot of folks that go through the biological anthropology field 
they end up going into forensics and, and working for crime scene uh, crime crime scene units and, and, and things of that nature. Um, and and we we do use similar techniques to to study crime scenes and archaeological sites in, in the way that we take our time and everything is methodical and everything is recorded. And, um, you know, there, there's, what, what does it call when, when art, uh, uh, something from a crime scene has to be in custody, you know, all the way back uh, uh, to the police department or wherever this stuff go. And it's, it's kind of the same thing with, with artifacts is we want to make sure exactly where that stuff came from. Uh, so we can write up reports and, and have full analysis of, of shipwrecks and things of, of uh, that nature. So another did question. I kind, of, did I kind of answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly what I was looking for. I, I did have another question because it dawned on me that there are areas of the earth that were once underwater mm. and now they're no longer underwater. So is that a maritime archaeologist job? now or is it fall into traditional when the water is no longer there or do you collaborate in some way yeah yeah that's that's a great question so you know there are a bunch of different terms uh we, we call those drowned terrestrial sites and uh often we we can use similar techniques uh that we use on on uh, land to actually excavate and and find some of these sites and i've, I've worked on uh a few projects with Texas A&M and Florida State University, uh, looking for for uh, submerged terrestrial sites in Florida, uh, and also that was that was that project I mentioned uh, in in Nevada. So, um, and yes, underwater archaeologists, we absolutely work with with terrestrial archaeologists. We're doing the same thing. Just hey, Sean, kind of what's up, buddy? Let's uh, talk a little bit about AirWorks. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Born at MIT, inspired by the advances in aerial data acquisition and the potential power of AI, AirWorks was founded by David Morsnick and Adam Kersnowski in August of 2017. Yeah, it was. Their complementary backgrounds in aerospace engineering, drones, and construction led to a combined desire to harness the power of technology to automate a traditionally time-consuming aerial data processing approach. Tell us more. Uh, sure. Headquartered in Boston, Airworks employs a team of unmatched AI experts, software developers, sales experts, marketers, geographers, and civil engineers all working together to redefine the future of mapping for the built world. And some other big news. Yeah. We just chatted with uh, David and Adam at GeoWeek last week, and they announced that they have recently formed a strategic partnership with Datasite and NearMap strengthening their position in the 3D world, no question. Innovation is definitely in their DNA. And to find out more, simply go to airworks.io. So I have to imagine that there's a scenario that you play over and over in your mind of the ultimate find. What would that look like <laughs> oh um you know me me being so so aviation uh obsessed really you know something like flight 19 that that flew out of uh near miami fort fort lauderdale and and never returned Fi finding some of the airplanes would would just be a highlight of my career right uh i i don't think it's it's ever going to happen only because 
it's it's a big Atlantic Ocean, and mm. uh, I, I think these things were way offshore, and so there's there's not a reason um, to do a project that far offshore in, in terms of uh, infrastructure and, and, and mm. surveying and, and things of that nature. Sure, sure. Um, so talking about offshore stuff, you know, there's a lot of, from what I understand, a lot of, like, uh, communication lines and things like that that are, you know, under on the bottom of the ocean or whatever, running from point to point. Um, do you guys get involved in any you know type projects like that? Oh, absolutely. And then I think that's that's our bread and butter. Um, you know, we we're involved in a lot of oil and gas, uh, yep. a lot of uh, wind farm development, uh, communication lines, uh, mm-hmm. etc. And yeah, we we frequently work with with a lot of uh, geophysical survey operators and we'll we'll put somebody on the boat to to observe data coming through but but a lot of what we do is back in the office and and going through hundreds and hundreds of lines of of uh, geophysical data okay cool well Scott, do you work with any of the submersibles and you know robot type um equipment that for you know situations where you know traditional scuba is is not applicable that's a good question um not directly with search but but we do receive data sets uh, from from rovs and and from uh, autonomous underwater vehicles that uh, are are unmanned Uh, and so we it's it's basically collecting the same data that a traditional geophysical survey would. And, and so, um, short answer, yes, tan- tangentially. <laughs> <laughs> yep. There you go. Um, so if somebody listening was interested in pursuing a career in maritime archeology, span what's some advice you might give them? Oh, um, good luck. <laughs> no, I, I, I would definitely reach out to some of those programs that I was talking about earlier, University of West Florida, Texas A&M, East Carolina. Um, it takes a lot of work and it takes many, many years to, to finally break into this. There, there aren't that many positions out there. Um, although that being said, there's a lot more infrastructure mm. projects. And so we're going to need more and more underwater mm-hmm. archaeologists to, to handle that stuff. Sure. Um, it's, it's not just the scuba diving. A lot of people come in and they think, wow, underwater archaeologists, I'm going to be scuba diving all the time. Um, I, maybe it's 10%, and that's, that's uh, oh, wow. pushing it a little bit. <laughs> um, but, but learn things like, like GIS and report writing and learn the, the permits um, learn, learn the, the regulatory stuff. It's, it's all important and it'll, it'll get you a job. Um, as soon as you get into underwater archeology, span we're directly related to the marine remote sensing world. Mm-hmm. And, and we work really closely, uh, with, with that crowd. So the, the way I, I kind of got in is, is I graduated or was about to graduate with my master's degree and I went offshore and I, I surveyed, you know, for months at a time, uh, which, which was really pretty difficult, you know, being away from family and all that. But it, it gains you the skills necessary to, to do this uh, on yeah. your own. So it's, it's really important. And also, you know, 
feel free to reach out me out to me. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. I'm happy to answer any questions uh, for anybody really interested in this stuff. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So, what are you excited about? Like five years down the road, if you're uh, if you're looking ahead that that far. <laughs> well, I hope I'm still around at that point. <laughs> uh, I really don't know. I, I just hope it's something interesting. Um, I, I'm always trying to, aside from my day to day, is is be involved in in uh, really fascinating, interesting projects. Um, I've got a, a ton coming up here shortly. Um, maybe I'll find Flight 19 in the next five, ten years. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to go get my my PhD. That's that's uh, top of the list. Uh, I've always wanted to be Doctor Whitehead for some reason. <laughs> there you go. Because it sounds good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, or you'd be like my dentist, Doctor Sick. That's his name. <laughs> you don't want that. No. Great dentist though. Yeah. Shout out. Free plug. Don't get used to it. <laughs> so I'm curious. You, scuba diving is part of your career and your job, but. From a recreational side, do you scuba dive recreational? And if you do, what what is the, your favorite place to go to? Well, okay, so um, I got to start with scuba diving is is what got me into underwater archaeology in general. It was I was going to a business program at the time, and I really despised it. <laughs> and around the same time, I, I uh, started scuba diving, and I just decided, hey, this is fun. Let's figure out how to do this uh, the rest of my life. Um, so that being said, yes, yes, I still recreationally scuba dive uh, when I can. Not not exactly here in Texas where I'm currently uh, residing. Um, I, I do a lot of uh, fun projects in, in Pensacola looking for those airplanes that I was talking about. But uh my family and I just went to Roatan, which uh, oh, I gotta yeah. say, Roatan is the most beautiful uh, reef I've ever dived. So, would, would highly recommend. <laughs> Super cool. Super cool. Um, so we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and I'm gonna let Larry ask it because typically Sean asks it, and I believe it's question number ten on your list there. Larry. Well, I can ask that question. Do you have a mantra that you live by? Uh, maybe he laughs. <laughs>, laughs. Um, but, but I tell myself and colleagues that I just want to do some interesting work, you know, and, and I, I'll go out of my way to collaborate on cool projects, interesting projects, uh, the maritime archaeology field's really small, and so if you got to make sure you you have close friends that are doing interesting things. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yep. it's good to have interesting friends. Uh, I have got to imagine in your in your particular world, <laughs> got a lot of yeah. interesting yeah. friends. Yeah, <laughs> no question. <laughs> about Hunter, before we let you get out of here, is there anything maybe you we, we haven't talked about yet that you want to get out there? Well, no, I. I Thank you guys so much for, for inviting me on the show. You know, I, I will plug again the Air Aqua Project. Uh, yep. I've got a website that just recently uh, was published, and that's Air Aqua, spelled A-E-R-A-Q-U-A dot org. 
there's there's going to be future projects and future stories about our work on there. Uh, so I'm really hoping to share what we do with with the wider audience. Awesome. Well, great having you on. Really interesting conversation. I've been really looking forward to this because, as I said, until I did my research about uh, you know the, the show, I had no idea maritime archaeology was such a thing and uh, such a fascinating thing at that. Yeah, this this actually sent me to a place where I was both interested in your professional career, but you know when I saw Iroquois, I was like, well, hey, being a pilot, I'm there like, you go, and a scuba diver, I'm like, there you uh, go. wreck diving on airplanes. Wow, yep. that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's super cool. All right, well, hey, Hunter, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, maybe uh, in the future, after you have a couple more super cool projects under your belt, we'll have you back, and uh, you can tell us about those. I look forward to it. I'll be uh, Dr. Whitehead at that point. There you go. There you go. All right, Paul. Here we go once again, adding value, making friends. Thank you, Larry Fox, for uh, being my right-hand person this evening. You are so welcome, sir. Enjoy it. Pleasure. Absolutely. If anyone would like to be a guest on a future show, shoot us an email at info at thegeoholics.com. Fleetwood Mac, don't stop. Available everywhere. Stevie Nicks is hot still. Until next time. Do cool stuff, and most importantly, stay safe and healthy.